very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, hundreds and hundreds of hours of great information, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com Subscribe and take Veritas with you. And if you want to get in touch with me, or you would like to be a guest on this radio program, go to the contact button of our website. In November 1988, Hugh John Simmons, Margaret Thatcher's favorite speechwriter and the author's best friend, boss, and political mentor, turned up dead in a woodland glade a few miles from the sleepy suburban hometown 20 miles west of London. To learn why his best friend was murdered, tonight's special guest journeyed into the dangerous world of international arms deals, covert intelligence operations, and high-level political corruption, and discovered a secret that explains much of contemporary history, a quest for truth, which after 20 years of high-risk adventure, coupled with painstaking research and first-hand interviews, uncovered the ugly truth that for some 30 years, the various governments of Great Britain have loaned their country's military and intelligence services to the United States, allowing presidents from Reagan to Obama to pursue their covert foreign and military policies without the encumbrance of congressional oversight. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Jeffrey Gilson, a lawyer. He was active for 10 years in the British Conservative Party before pursuing a commercial career in public relations. His website is maggieshammer.com, which is also linked at ours. And he's also written a book with a very long title, Maggie's Hammer, How Investigating the Mysterious Death of My Friend Uncovered a Netherworld of Illegal Arms Deals, Political Slush Funds, High-Level Corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret rule as America's hired gun. And directly from Carborough, North Carolina, I'd like to welcome Jeffrey Gilson. Hello, Jeffrey, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Uh, Mel, thank you very much. I'm fine, and thank you for having me on Veritas to talk about my new book, Maggie's Hammer. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And, of course, after reading the book, I was surprised to see that you are in North Carolina you know, that's a long way from England. What, what, what are you doing in the U.S. when your story started in the U.K.? Well, um, there are lots of different reasons, but the, but the, but the simplest reason is that um, I was told some years ago 
that uh, not only Great Britain, but Europe was probably not a very safe place for me to be. Um, apparently, the reach of some people doesn't get as far as Carborough, North Carolina, um, but Europe is not a very safe place for me to be, uh, which is difficult because I spent 32 years in the same small town. Um, and that is the essence of the book. Um, I know you've read it, and, and you will know that um, the book goes some very interesting places um, that are touchstones for many of your listeners in terms of the last 30 years, um, from the Iran-Contra scandal in the 80s all the way up to what's happening with ISIS today, uh, primarily in the Middle East but all around the world. And it gives some insight into all of that. But beyond the insight, beyond the journey that I went through, the 20-year journey to get there, which included, as you said, some rather amazing adventures and a lot of research. My book is primarily a very personal story. Um, it isn't a formal expose. It isn't a formal reference work. It is my chronicle of my journey trying to discover what happened to my friend and the amazing discoveries that he was involved in things that we read about in the newspapers every day. Um, and that's an important point because you and I were just chatting before we came on air. People forget that when they read the headlines, that the, the, the headlines are made by pretty ordinary human beings. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Body of Lies, um, which stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not yet. Okay. Well, essentially, Leonardo DiCaprio is doing his dashing American spy thing all around um, the Middle East and killing people and whatever and all the rest, and winning the women and all the rest. But he is in constant communication by satellite because this is the 21st century with his controller, Russell Crowe, who is back in Virginia with a headphone on, like I'm wearing on your radio show right now. And it's, it's a much more fancy uh, radio phone. And throughout this movie, Russell Crowe is giving him instructions while he's taking the kids to school, while he's in the supermarket, while he's washing them in the bathtub. And it's very clever because it reminds people that these are ordinary human beings. They've got mortgages. They live in houses. They probably live down the street from you. So when we look at the headlines and we say to ourselves, what on earth can we do? The interesting thing is there's actually quite a lot we can do, but we've actually got to do it. And if there's one message from my book, aside from the things that were discovered, aside from the fast-paced read, the one message from my book is it is possible for ordinary people to do something to take back control of our lives. And that is keep, out, keep an eagle eye on what's going on around you. If there is someone living down the street uh, and engaged in something strange, it's probably something strange. If there's something happening locally that doesn't add up, it probably doesn't add up. And you can either shrug your shoulders and look the other way, or you get, to use an English expression, you get tucked in. That's how my adventure started. Something happened to my friend. It didn't make any sense, and I wouldn't accept the official version. Let's dissect it in chronological order because I, I, I like to go from A to Z in steps. Okay. But something interesting you said since you were you mentioned the word ISIS. As yes. I'm reading the book, 
And obviously, I think when you read the book, when you finished the book, I think ISIS was still a fragment of our imagination, if you will. Yes. But I can see how all the way back from the Mujahideen and even before, this has evolved into Al-Qaeda, into ISIS, into many, you know, branches of the new boogeyman that's created Mm -hmm. by all these parties. They're not mentioned in your book, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to have conversations about these during our exchange. Yes, I mean, I'll get to the chronological bit in a moment. Um, but since, you know, I mean, I mean, it's impossible for anyone not at the moment to be talking about ISIS, Syrian refugees, the Paris bombing, and of course, this coming Sunday, JFK's death. Right. And then and they are at the one and the same time all connected. And again, it's, it, ordinary people read the headlines and they're like, this is crazy. Okay, this is going on. I, I, I know I'm probably going to hear on this television program, oh, sorry, this radio program, how it is that this is all connected. But why is it connected? Who is letting this happen? Why is it happening? And the answer, for this, the answer to that is all of the um, events, most of the events around the world today, particularly in the Middle East, all link back to the 80s. They all link back through London, and they all have to do with money. Uh, and a lot, a lot of the reason that your listeners may not understand some of this is for those reasons. It links back to a time when they may not even have been around. Well, it links back through a city they think has nothing to do with this. It's Washington, yes. Damascus, yes. But why London? And money, eh, yeah, but how? So that's, yes, there are links. And um, so let's go back in history um, to 1988 uh, when my friend died. Uh, my friend is a guy called Hugh Simmons. Um, How did you meet? We lived in the same small town. Uh, Beaconsfield is the town that we lived in, which is a small town just 20 miles to the west of London. And when I say small, it's a a town of about 11,000 people. Uh, Think of any large city in America, a nice little sleepy suburb of 11,000 people. And we're we're pretty much like that. The only difference is that if you think of those wonderful uh, old uh, movies from the uh, about England and the Tudor cottages, that's Beaconsfield. We had the village green and we had the ducks and we had the Tudor houses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it, it, was a, it, it, was, it was a picture postcard town of 11,000 people sleepy. Nothing very much happened. Hugh had been mayor of Beaconsfield at a very young age. He was a few years older than me. We were both interested in politics. And we met up through politics. At that time, my politics were I was a member of the British Conservative Party and I am much of a fan of Margaret Thatcher. My politics have kind of changed since then. But there we were, young conservative politicians in the 80s. Margaret Thatcher was in power. We were working our way, both of us, to becoming members of parliament. He was a little bit ahead of me. He was a member. As I said, he was the mayor of Beaconsfield. I served as a councillor on the town council. We met up. We you know, went on, went, you know, carried on doing what we were doing. He was a lawyer. As it became uh, more apparent that he was close to becoming a member of parliament, I joined his uh, law firm as his senior employee so that um, you know we'd be together in that way. And everything was fairly normal until November um, 15. Um, in fact, we just passed the anniversary a few days ago. November 15, 1988, crisp, clear, slightly cool November morning, he turned up dead in a woodland glade in his car about seven miles from our hometown, and nobody could work out why. Um, and it was ruled a suicide, right? It was ruled a suicide. I, there was nothing particularly um, unusual about that at the time. 
Uh, I've been asked, well, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you demand an autopsy? Well, there's always an autopsy when there's suicide. But understand, at the time, um, and, and, and it's very easy to look at things in the past two-dimensionally rather than three-dimensionally, because it's very difficult to be there. And one of the things I try and do in my book is describe it in a personal way. So I hope that people can actually be there walking with me through this uh, adventure, through this journey. But at the time, we were struck dumb by the fact that he'd committed suicide, but there was no reason to suspect that it was other than suicide, and then he was cremated because that was his wish. So there's no way to go back and do anything now. But at the time, there was nothing suspicious about his death other than the fact that he was dead. Um, however, very quickly, it became apparent that there were some $7 million missing from the client's account of the law firm, to which he was the sole signatory. Um, and that's pretty much where everybody closed the book. There was some cursory investigation to see if they could find, track down the missing money. Uh, the missing money was never found. Um, they closed down the investigation after six months and then turned their attention to me uh, because, as it was pointed out to me by the police. To you as a the, suspect? I was a suspect. Uh, in fact, in a very um, pleasant way, I'm still a suspect. Um, I'm reminded of this from time to time when I contact them to see if they have any more news. And they're very nice about it. But since they couldn't find the money, they started looking for people, and I was the obvious person. So um, I, I, if, if I need to say it, please let me say this. I don't have the $7 million, because <laughs> with the greatest of respect to you, Mel, if I had the $7 million, I wouldn't be on your radio program. <laughs> uh, I'd be I'd be sunning myself on Copacabana Beach. Um but um, they, they, they didn't Why are you a suspect, first of all? Because I was a senior employee. Um, and they, 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 they have to have something that allows them to shut the book. And I was the answer. But I was a convenient answer. Because when they said, I, when they said we can't find the money, I went through all sorts of questions. Um, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I'm very good. I may not be good at many things, but I'm very good at asking questions. And so I'd ask them all sorts of questions. Well, have you spoken to this person? Have you looked here? Well, we, we're, not, we're not allowed to. Who says you're not allowed to? The Law Society. The police and the Law Society were looking into this. The Law Society is the equivalent of the National Bar Association. But I think what I should probably do is point out that, uh, again, to try and get a sort of a personal handle on this, at the time, no, it's not at the time. Seven million dollars. It was a what's called a sole practitioner firm. He was the sole partner of the firm. I was his senior employee, but he was the sole partner. That seven million dollar theft from that small law firm remains to this day, thirty years later, the single largest theft by a solicitor of client funds. It was huge. It made it made national and international headlines, not just because. Uh, the fact that he was Margaret Thatcher's favorite speechwriter, but also because of the amount of money that was missing. And yet, they could not find a penny of it. By the way, that's about, that's about $14 million in today's money. Well, yes, it was a lot of money. Um, and they couldn't find any of it. And, and I gave them some clues as to where they might look, not because I knew, but because I said, have you looked here, have you looked there? But then they said, no, 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 but we're, we're now going to turn your attention to me. And I said, okay, well, turn your attention to me. Bring me in. Beat me senseless, ask me questions, I'll give you answers, and I'll tell you where you should be looking. Um, and they said, well, no, we don't want to do that. We just want to keep you on file as a suspect. Well, but you don't actually want to do anything. No. So here we had this dichotomy, this huge amount of money missing, 
Um, they're holding me as a suspect. They're not holding me, but they're holding me in suspicion, but they're not prepared to do anything, and they close the books. Well, two things going on here. First of all, I can't exactly do nothing. I've lived in this small town, the one with the ducks and the duck pond and the, the village green where I know all the streets and I know everyone by my first, their first name. I've lived there for 32 years, Mel. Um, I've never wanted to live anywhere else. I wanted to go and be a member of parliament 20 miles down the road, live in Beaconsfield and live happily ever after, have a wife, have kids, good night, goodbye. And suddenly I am being told that I am the primary suspect in the largest theft by a solicitor in history. Well, you can probably imagine, I can't get a job. Um, in fact, we played a game. Uh, I, I currently, as I say, my politics have somewhat changed and... Um, I now work in a grocery co-op. It's the largest grocery co-op in the southeastern United States. But that's kind of where my politics is. And um, I, I've been telling the story before I wrote the book. And my boss one day said, I, I, I just, you know, I, I'm not saying I disbelieve you, Jeff, but this is kind of, ooh, this is kind of difficult to, to understand. So you're saying that so you've been blacklisted. Yeah, I've been blacklisted. He said, I said, I'll tell you what, next time, an next time an English person comes in, I'll talk to them. So this English person, literally, next time this English person came in, he was about 20 years old, a little bit too young to remember any of this. And it turns out he grew up in the town seven miles down the road. And I said, do you remember the name Hugh Simmons? He said, no. Mayor of Beaconsfield, guy who killed himself back in the 80s. Oh, wait a minute. My parents told me about this guy who... Um, uh, stole a bunch of money. He was the mayor of Beaconsfield, all sorts of suspicious stuff. And I said, yes. Do you remember anything else? He said, yes. Yes, he had a partner who fled to America. I said, no, that's me. I didn't flee anywhere. And my boss is standing there with his mouth hanging open saying, so you're famous. I said, no, it's called notorious, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I couldn't get a job. So um, I... I had to do something, and to, I first of all came to America back in 1989 to scout it out, just to think about coming and living it. Because oh, um, I am a dual American citizen. But, I, but why couldn't uh, you get a job? Why, why couldn't you just clear ooh, your name? Well, mm, okay, that's part of the reason why I started my own investigation was to do precisely that. Um, I'm a dual British and American citizen, perfectly capable of starting a life in America. But I didn't want to start a life in America. I wanted to go on living in England. Sure. But I couldn't go on living in England until I cleared my name. Well, again, let, let, let's deal with anecdotes. Anecdotes are nice and easy for listeners to understand. Um, I went to various employment agencies in London um, specializing in law and gave them my resume and said, give me a job anywhere. And they, they, they couldn't get me a job. And um, I said, why? And they said, well, because you're Jeff Gilson. And I said, what's so what? And they said, you do realize everyone in the country and everyone in the legal profession knows who you are. I said, for, for real? They said, yes. There was this one employment agency where the owner had been living in Hong Kong and didn't know me. And he got me an interview with somebody. And I went to this, this interview and I was talking to the, 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 the senior partner of the law firm, loved me, loved what I could do, loved what I could do for him. And it starts looking, and, and then this, this partner comes in and looks at the resume and looks up at me and says, should I know you? And I said, oh, gee, oh. Uh, yes. And he said, Simmons and Company. I said, yes. And he said, goodbye. So wow. that was that. Um, but I mean, there, there's nothing unusual about that. I mean, I entirely understand it, but... It left me, Mel, in a situation where I wanted to do something about clearing my name, naturally. At the same time, 
when Hugh died, he had three small children, uh, Juliet, who was 11, Tanya, who was eight, and Paul, who was three. And I, I will tell you this, Mel, you don't ever want to have to sit in someone's living room holding the hands of an 11-year-old girl yeah. who is looking at you with haunted eyes, expecting you, Uncle Jeff, to tell her why her father died and didn't explain why. Yeah. You don't ever want to be there. And people have said to me, it's very interesting because I've been doing radio interviews, it's made me address certain things I've never addressed in 30 years. I guess I just blocked it out. And this one person said, so you've devoted your life to this? And I said, well, no. And he said, 27 years. And I said, oh, well, yeah. And he said, why? And I, I fumbled around because you try and come up with a clever answer. And I finally said, actually, that's a stupid question. What, what do you mean, why? Um, metaphysically, the universe is $13 billion, $13 billion, oh dear, 13 billion years old. Um, I know that your program deals with intelligent life on other planets, but it's old. We live, whatever our metaphysical beliefs are, and I do believe in life before and life after, but this sentient being that we call Jeff Gilson, this lump of clay with this soul or whatever in it called Jeff Gilson, is going to live consciously for 80 to 90 years. That's nothing. But at the same time as it's nothing, there is nobody in the world like me, whoever has been like me, whoever will be like me. I am at one and the same time infinitesimally irrelevant and absolutely unique. So I've got 90 years. Do you know something, Mel? If I've spent a third of my life trying to find out what happened to the father of an 11-year-old girl, that's not a bad thing to spend my life doing. So, yeah, if this is what I've spent most of my life doing, good. I'm happy to do it, and I'm happy to have got somewhere where they know a little bit more than they did. But anyway, back to the story. Those are the two things that decided me to go looking. And um, like I said, I'm an ordinary guy. All I had was the ability to ask questions. So I started asking questions. Um, anytime you need to take a break, just let me know, because I will go on talking forever. No, that's fine. We'll take a break after the first hour. But obviously, <laughs> yeah. I, as you say, you were just an ordinary guy living an ordinary life. Yeah. You know, why have you continued to pursue this quest even when it puts your life in danger? Well, that was basically the reason. Um, first of all, because of his children. Um, not because I needed to clear my name. I, I haven't cleared my name, but you know, it's become irrelevant. Um, I'm in America. I have a life. I've published a book. Um, my main interest is is my music. I, I write really, really catchy pop songs. They're the sort of things you don't want to listen to, but I enjoy them. <laughs> so I'm, hap I'm happy with my life. Um, I don't care if I'm not, my, my name isn't cleared back in Great Britain, but primarily the children. And also as it's gone along and the, and the, and the layers of the onion have been peeled back, it, for me, it's been absolutely fascinating that this ordinary guy, this ordinary friend of mine was involved in all of these intense activities around the world. And I had no clue. That was my next I, question, by the way. I wanted to ask you, yeah. how do you discover, because you were best friends, you thought that, you know, he was into politics, a family man. How did you discover after he, he died all of well, the things that he was involved in? Um, he was, um, let's get back to describing a little bit, because that will help to answer that question. Um, I'd love to be able to say that Hugh was a cross between Mother Teresa and Pope Francis, but he wasn't. Um, 
I like to think that I'm reasonably okay, and I would have made a good backbench politician, as we call them, but I wouldn't have been a very successful government minister because I'm not ambitious enough and I'm not sleazy enough. Um, Hugh, I found him a very interesting person, but he was very ambitious and very sleazy. I care for his kids. Um, I care to get the truth about him, but this is not an exercise in vindication. He is exactly the sort, now I realize, he is exactly the sort of person that would have got involved in this. And he's also exactly the sort of person who it would have been easy to deny. He had a wife and two kids by the wife, but he had a mistress and a child by the mistress. He treated them well, but he was that kind of guy. Um, and remember, this was the 80s. It was a little better than the 40s, but still it wasn't as, as permissive as people think it was. Um, he was ambitious. He was ruthlessly ambitious. Um, there are uh, people in politics even now who remember how ruthless he could be. Um, he was, I found him like, I, I liked him because I, I kind of like rogues, but a lot of people didn't like him. And that's the secret because he was also intensely um, controlled and controlling and kept to himself, kept a lot of secrets, as I discovered a lot more secrets than I realized. Um, how did I discover? Well, there I am. In 1988, no reputation, a name to clear, want to find the truth for his kids. I don't really know where to start. I just start asking friends. But I have a little idea of what to start with, um, possibly. Um, I was asking all sorts of questions about money and the stock exchange and could he have been doing this and could he have been doing that. But in, a, but in amongst all of this, um, Hugh had mentioned from time to time that he was in British intelligence. But Mel... This was kind of like the guy in the bar, uh, at the end of the bar, who's a little bit drunk on a Saturday evening, who says, you know, I used to be in the SEALs, and I could tell you some stories, but then I'd have to kill you. Um, well, it was kind of the same thing. He mentioned that he was in British intelligence, but it didn't go anywhere. It didn't mean anything. Occasionally, I was with him, and he met with people, and strange things would happen, and I, I was immeasurably bored. I mean, it just didn't interest me at all. And once I actually said to him, I said, I know you have me along for a reason, but when you're doing these strange little things, which don't seem to add up to anything, um, why do you bring me along? And he said, well, one day you might be my insurance policy. Well, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But as it's turned out, apparently, I am his insurance policy. Um, so Basically, I didn't look at that to begin with. I, again, I had no reason to look at it. I was just trying to find out where the money would, had gone. Because if I could find out where the money had gone, it would clear my name. Um, so it became apparent to me that I'd already moved to Rhode Island at the end of 1988 um, to start a new life with my sister. And six months later, I was contacted by the Law Society and their investigators and told they couldn't find the money and they'd like to come and visit me. Let me jump in. And I apologize for, for, for no, no, no. interjecting, but I have to ask you, you know, even yeah. right now, I remember September the 10th, 20, uh, 2001, when Donald Rumsfeld yeah. all of a sudden says, we lost $2.3 trillion. Even yeah. in the 80s, we had computer systems. Even in 1988, we yeah. have computer systems that could track every single penny. I still don't get, unless you have bags or trucks full of cash, as they did in Iraq at one point. When they, well, How do you do that? How do you lose the money like that without being able to trace it? You see, Mel, um, I, I, I'll say this, that my, my publisher, um, Chris Milligan of Trine Day, who is a sure. wonder, wonderful man. I've never met him. 
He published my book, Sight Unseen. He read it and said, this needs to be published. He's a wonderful man, and one day I will get around to meeting him. Um, but, um, oh, but by the way, nobody out. wanted to take your book. And by the way, Chris, I've, I've interacted with you. I have a book that I want to send you that nobody wants to touch. There you that's go. a different story. There you go. Um, he'll be happy to talk with you. Um, so, yes, this is the yeah, this is the interesting thing, Mel. It's something that is going to become a theme of our our discussion during this program: is who to believe, who not to believe. Why do people believe the strangest things? Um, like Donald Rumsfeld saying, "Oh, we just lost two point three million dollars." Trillion dollars. Um, trillion. Okay, trillion dollars. It's um, even now. I look back at Hugh, and I was his senior employee. Yes, he was gone from long periods in the office. He was off visiting his uh, fiance, his his mistress. He was off doing business deals or whatever. He was there in the morning. He'd come back in the afternoon to sign the post. He was there during the day. I'd go to court. He'd go to court. But even now, it's like, where on earth did $7 million go? Well, what became clear when I – I mean, the next thing I did – I came back from America and came to England and sat down with the police and sat down with the Law Society and said, well, if you're not going to look into this, I am, which did not make them happy. And I said, I've got some questions, which they didn't make them very happy. And in the course of asking my questions, and imagine, if you will, this, this very old conference room in the Law Society in London, very quiet, creaking oak and all the rest of it. And on one side of the table, there is me in my denim jacket and hidden uh, audio recorder. And on the other side, 10 men in suits lined up against me, answering my questions, looking at me with a death stare. And But in the course of asking questions, as I mentioned, I'm pretty good at asking questions. Somebody suddenly drops like a, a, a grenade. This, 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 oh, well, yeah, but that would be with the other 10 million pounds. What other 10 million pounds? And you can hear leather hitting foot under the table. Well, okay, when we were looking for the five million pounds, the seven million dollars, it also became apparent to us that there was another 10 million pounds there. And I said, well, hang on, what do you mean there? If you haven't been able to find it, how do you know it's there? Well, it's not so much that we can't find it, we're not being allowed to recover it. Okay, well, straight away you are into strange things here because one minute you can't find it, the next minute you can't recover it, and it's no longer five million pounds, it's 15 million pounds, and 10 million pounds of that wasn't his. So they so knew where it was. So, yeah, so where did it come from? And meanwhile, I'm sitting there saying, when was he doing this? Um, now, part of the reason they couldn't recover a lot of the money or find some of his money was, again, they let it slip, uh, was because it had been moved in, in cash. And I'm like, okay. Their lead investigator was a guy called um, – you're going to love this because it's stuff you can't make up. His name was Jeff Hughes. And the first time I met him, I said, are you for real? And he said, what do you mean? I said, oh, come on, Jeff Hughes? And he said, no, that's my real name. And I said, this is going to look great on screen, but okay. So I'll, I'll accept your name as Jeff Hughes. He was the lead investigator. And when he was pulled off the case, he met with me once privately and said things I think he'd rather I didn't say, but he didn't say it was confidential. And he said, you know, most of this money was taken out of his account in cash. And I said, $7 million is a lot of cash. Where, where did he take it? And he said, well, we have evidence that he sort of stuffed it into suitcases and took it to Europe. I said, wait a minute. When? 
When did he do this? And to this day, Mel, even the people who have apparently discovered stuff tell me things that I find difficult to believe. Now, maybe it's true, but the whole the whole story is so fantastic. Um, it's beyond James Bond. Even those things which are, are mundane are fantastic. So apparently, a lot of the money they couldn't find because it was moved in cash. Now, hold on to that point because I come back to that later okay. because I, I have other people telling me that he was taking cash into Europe. But it wasn't cash that he was stealing from his account. It was cash that he was taking to other people in Europe. And I raised this with Jeff later on. And I said, how can you tell the difference? And he said, well, I guess we can't. So you came across some evidence he was up to bits and pieces, but you never thought to examine the intelligence connection. We were told not to. Okay. Well, wow. So there I am. I am back in England in now in 1989, trying to track down where the money went. I went to see the Law Society. I discovered there was other money hanging around. I went to see the police and um, they just said, very nice of you to come and see us, Mr. Gilson. Are you, have you come to give us a confession? I said, well, no. I've come to see if you've discovered anything. And they said, no, other than the fact that you're sitting here. But the interesting thing, this is when it first, first got, got interesting, uh, because I was there and they said, um, by the way, did you know you were being followed? And I said, well, I had my suspicions. What do you mean? I was in a car. And they said, when you came in, there were three cars following you. I said, all right. And they said, yeah, what happened? And they said, well, one of them followed you into the parking lot before they realized it was a police station. And I actually sent someone down to try and stop them, but they whisked around, they disappeared. And I said, oh, right, so tell me about... So they, they took down the license plates and they tracked the license plates and they came back to me sometime later and said, well, you asked us what the, where the license, what the license plates were for and they said, we're not really allowed to tell you. What we can tell you is it's an institution that doesn't exist. And I said, beyond, okay. beyond MI5, beyond MI6. Yeah, and I said, okay, so you're sitting, me, sitting there looking me in the face saying there were three cars that followed me in here that have license plates that belong to an institution that doesn't exist... And yet, when I say, have you gone and spoken to anyone in British intelligence, you make out that I'm an idiot. Well, yeah. Wow. Okay. Good thing I'm asking questions, really, isn't it? So around about this time now, I'm, I'm getting nowhere. And I'm beginning to see other bits and pieces going on that don't add up. And I remembered one name. The name that Hugh had said, if anything ever happens to me, and again, I didn't think anything of it at the time, go and see this man, he may have the answer. And I'm not making any of this up. And the best part is I'm not making up the name of this guy. This guy is called Reginald von Zugback de Sug. I'm not making this up. In fact, you can Google the name. He yeah, exists. I laughed when I read it in the book. Yeah. I know. Isn't it great? I mean, fortunately, over 27 years as grim as this story is involving young children and matters that we get into, um, you have to have a sense of humor. And I've had an amazing sense of humor. I mean, it's just like, Reginald von Zugback to Sug, this is going to look so good on the movie. But wait a second. Wait, wait a second. I, I couldn't make this up. Question. If yes. they found the money, an yes. additional money too, and they yes. saw that there was no link between the money and you, yes. why were you still a suspect? That's a very good question, um, because mm, ah, this comes back to the sort of the general point of ordinary listeners listening to your show who want to get to the truth, who want to get to the truth because they don't want to live in a world 
where they believe they are controlled by other people. And I make no judgment with this next comment. It's, I, just, I just put it out there. We don't want to be controlled by anyone. We don't want to be controlled by people we don't know in Washington. We don't want to be controlled by people who may come from a planet a gazillion years away. Basically, the commonality here is we don't like to be controlled. And we want to get to the truth so we can understand who are the people doing what they're doing that leaves us in a position where we don't feel that we can design our own lives anymore. We wake up and we read headlines and it's got nothing to do with us. We look down the street at our local government and they're doing things that don't seem to have anything to do with why we elected them. And we'd like this to stop. Okay. So that's basically what I've been trying to do with this is, is, is find some way to get back control of my life. And... All the time, I am beset by people who lie and steal and are blind. And I had the same question to, to, to the Law Society and the police, which is, if, if, if you found stuff and it's obviously nothing to do with me and my name has never been attached to anything, why are you still looking at me? And there is some part of the human mind which needs to be able to leave something logically, if I'm making sense. And I looked them in the eye, and basically it was because you're in front of us, and we can handle that. We can handle the fact that you were his senior employee, and we can't find the money, therefore there's got to be something suspicious. You're the suspicious person, and that's as far as we're prepared to go. Even though I'm not connected to any of this other money, yep. Even though you can't find out where that money went, nope. Even though there's nothing to connect me, you still hold me in suspicion. That's the easiest answer. We can close the files and leave it there. And too often, that's the way the human mind works. It's as simple as that. It's extraordinary, but it's as simple as that. As I say, it doesn't really matter, though. Um, they weren't going to investigate it themselves. Um, Jeff Hughes told me that he, he was um, a senior investigator with a private firm called Caratu International, uh, who were hired by the Law Society to track down the money. And I spoke many years later with Paul Caratu, who was the son of the founder, and said, did you find it surprising that your investigation was stopped? Because Jeff, Jeff had made it very clear that the investigation was stopped. At the time it was stopped, he had open leads. And amazingly enough, he had open leads in cities in America, which I ended up connecting with arms deals, Atlanta and Dallas. Um, but as soon as he tried to go to those cities to interview people, the investigation was cut short. And years later, I asked Paul, were you surprised if the investigation was cut short? And he said, actually, I wasn't surprised they even started the investigation. We've done a number of investigations uh, for the Law Society, for solicitors who've been a bit naughty. Uh, and he said, but this one, it was clear from the very beginning, it was very different. There was this committee which fed us the information would not give us any explanation for the information, simply asked us to investigate the information, provide them and them only with the answer, any answer that we could find, and we were not we were not allowed to look at the context, which is one of the reasons, he said, Mr. Gilson, we weren't able to pursue you because we were told, even though you were under suspicion, hands off Gilson. Don't talk to him, don't speak with him, don't investigate him. But, 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 he's a prime suspect. We don't care. That's none of your business. So the whole thing was just crazy. It was a cover-up. Um... And he said, I'm surprised we were ever asked to investigate because every time we go anywhere interesting, the committee um, of the Law Society would say, fine, leave that alone, don't go any further. Um, I managed to get the names of the people on the committee. And one of the people on the committee had very obvious connections with British intelligence. 
So that's what I was up against. But it was a good question, Mel. I mean, you know, why was I still under suspicion? Um, because it was easy. So I was still, um, I still had my reasons for wanting to get to the truth. Well, if if, uh, if they determined the cause of death as suicide, and that's the yeah. way it was, why even continue looking at you? Um, because oh, good question. Well, first of all, because if I if if they can prove I'm an accomplice, um, that's a crime. So the police want to prosecute me. Accomplice of what? In case it's a a murder as opposed to a suicide? No, I might I might have assisted him in stealing the money. I see. It's it's basically um, again. It comes back to this was the single largest theft by a solicitor in history. Um, the law society doesn't. Uh, the law society had to cover the funds that were stolen. They had to pay the clients back the money that had been stolen. Oh, is that right? Almost like an insurance well, policy. Oh, well, yeah. Well, they don't have an insurance policy. Their insurance policy is other solicitors. Um, year, years later, I was talking with a friend who was a lawyer in England, and he said, "Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't know this, Jeff." He said, "There was a thing called the Simmons Levy." And I said, "What was that?" And he said, "The year after your mate died, every solicitor in England." was charged a thousand pounds to cover what the law society had to pay Simmons's clients. There's no insurance policy. They 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 had to pay they had to come up with the money themselves and they had they they passed the uh, the bill on to other lawyers. So even if I never had a chance of getting a job, I was not going to get a job after the Simmons levy because people too many people remembered it. So um, first of all, the police. So you, wanted, you are guilty by association, basically. By association, yeah. I mean, but the, the police wanted to find somebody guilty. Everybody always says, whenever there's a crime, they want to find somebody guilty. And the law society had good reason to come after someone because they wanted to try and um, get the money back. And I think they genuinely believed that I knew where the money was. Um, I was told by Jeff Hughes at one time. Um, I think it was when we had that long private conversation which will feature a bit later and he said i said come on come on jeff what do you think i'm doing over here and he said we think you're putting up a smoke screen oh really yeah you think i'm that clever and he said well i don't know but basically we think you're going through the motions of looking quotes unquotes for the money and trying to find an answer but you've got the money and you're just, you're just trying to put us off our stride and i'm like okay wow gee i've got a headache um okay I mean, you know, here's the thing, Mel. There may be some of your listeners who think exactly the same thing, which is why I encourage your listeners to buy the book, which is called Maggie's Hammer. And I'm very open. Read it. It's fascinating. Make up your own mind. And maybe some of your listeners will get to the end and say, you know what? We think Jeff is guilty of sin. In which case, drop me an email. I'm happy to hear from you. But I'd be much more happy if you drop me an email. This is one of the reasons why I'm publishing the book now, because I'm one guy. I've got some answers, Mel, but I haven't got all of the answers. I still don't know exactly what Hugh was doing or how and why he died. And what I'm hoping by getting what I know out there now, what I'm hoping is that um, there may be somebody out there who reads the book and says, oh, I know this name, or blimey, this sounds like someone my dad knew. Um, and I, I, you know, my, this, this friend of yours, I think he knew my, my father and they were doing some stuff down in Florida. Would you like to know about that? Yes, I would. Um, and my email address is in the book and it's on the website. So please feel happy to contact me if you know anything at all. Um, meanwhile, back in England, um, 
I'm discovering this stuff which suggests that there's something else going on. I knew about Reggie. All I knew about Reggie is that he taught at the University of Glasgow at some point. So I looked in their telephone directory online or whatever it was. I don't think there was online back then, but wherever it was. And he was still there. And so I popped up in Glasgow and uh, telephoned him and asked if I could meet him. Now, if any of your listeners are, are getting inspired by this to start their own investigations into nefarious activity they think is going on around them, here's a couple of clues. Number one, do not turn up on the doorstep of somebody that you think is an intelligence agent unannounced. It makes them very nervous. <laughs> and, and they tend to have guns. And Reggie had a gun, and he introduced me to his gun. That was our introduction. But uh, he calmed down a little bit, and I did my thing. I asked lots of questions, and he batted them away. And finally he said, he said, you know way too much. I said, I don't know anything. He said, well, you may think you don't, but you do. And I will tell you this much and no more. I will tell you that I, Reggie, am in, in British military intelligence, and Hugh was in the civilian equivalent. And he said, I very strongly believe that he was involved in some um, government activity before he died. And it is my information, he said, that he was killed. It was not suicide, that he did not go out to those wood, that woodland glade to commit suicide. He went out to that woodland glade with $3 million on him in cash, and he went out there to meet someone to get him out of the country, and he was double-crossed. And I said, right, well, can you tell me any more? And he said, no, um, it wouldn't be safe for you. And he was the first person who told me, in fact, it's not really very safe. You're this is what here. year? This was 1989. Okay, so it's just a year after, less than a year after. Yeah. And um, we then had an interesting moment because he then uh, made a telephone call and looked very grim when he got off the telephone, tucked his gun in his pocket uh, and said, time to take you back to the hotel, put me in his car. We were chased by a couple of cars all around Glasgow. Very exciting. It's all in the book. And uh, near the hotel, he said, I'm going to go through an underground parking lot and you're going to jump out and I'm going to get rid of these guys. And I'm like, okay. So uh, he said he was going to stop the car. He didn't stop the car. He kept moving. So when I jumped out of the car, I kind of staggered. I think I was supposed to fall over. And I ran to this door in the corner of the parking lot that was about 10 feet away from where he'd stopped, uh, where, where he hadn't stopped, where I jumped. And then I heard a screech of tires. And just before I looked, went through the door, I looked back. And the car had stopped. The door was open. He was leaning over, pointing his gun at me. And as I disappeared through the door, uh, there were two loud explosions behind me. So... This is the strange world that I'd got myself into. Um, the stranger thing was that two weeks later... Was that your first encounter with death? Uh, well, I didn't die, but... Well, um, close it, call, though. It was my first encounter with near death, but it wasn't the last time that somebody, um, I believe, tried to have a go at me. I'm, I'm very qualified about this. I don't, I don't try to pretend that there's stuff going on that isn't. That did happen. But I think there was one other occasion somebody tried to drug me. Um, but um, yes, basically, that was my first encounter with that. But the amazing thing is that um, two weeks later, he telephoned me uh, on a telephone number. I, I don't know how he got. Um, and um, Acted quite normal. I mean, the first thing he said was, "Well, it's a good thing that um, you're a fast runner, and and I'm I'm a I'm a lover of life." I said, "Well, gee, that's an interesting introduction." After that episode, I said, "Why are you talking to me?" He said, "I've had further discussions." I said, "Okay." He said, it, "We, I, I, I've got to be very cautious, but 
we now believe that you may be of interest. So we've got some questions for you and some bits and pieces. I can probably help you a bit, but not as much as you might like. Um, and I said, do you want to explain how I could be helpful? He said, no. And this is this I discovered is the intelligence world. People think that it's, as I said, it's, not a, it's all James Bond and pretty girls and guns. Well, again, I guess there were some guns. But actually, it's full of very boring bureaucratic people who have to consult committees to do things. And it's all about double agents and double cross. One day you're useful, the next day you're not. One day you're running an operation for them. The next day, the operation that you were running was inconvenient, you're deniable, and perhaps you need to be removed. And everyone is expendable. Everybody is expendable. And if they miss and they don't, you know, you're not expendable, then a few weeks later, you may become useful again. And so they start playing with you again. And playing is the important word because one of the most difficult things, Mel, from this point on, as I, I mean, from this point, I sort of basically descended down the rabbit hole into this world of intelligence intrigue, um, one step after the other. And as I did, it's been very, very difficult to keep a hold of reality and keep a hold of what's true, because these people are taught to lie. Um, the most successful agent is not James Bond. The most successful agent is a very boring person who is a double agent. And he is deliberately fed information by both sides. And he passes the information on to the other side. And he is not aware what is true. And he is not aware what is fabrication. But everyone does it. And that is your typical double agent. Um, and when I'm talking with them, and it's an interesting question as to why they were talking with me, when I'm talking with them, I am conscious the whole time that I'm not sure if they're telling me the truth or not. And most of my journey, and part of the book, not all of it, um, is about trying to find out, sort out the truth from the uh, the chaff. Um, in fact, the book is basically broken down into three sections. The first section is the adventure. Ooh, Jeff out there, meeting people, getting information. The second part is taking that information and trying to set it in context, doing a lot of research, trying to find out what what might be true, what might not be true. And then the third section is going back to people, particularly very senior figures in British and American politics and in industry, and saying, okay, I am told this. Is there any chance any part of this is true? Did this and, all begin with uh, <coughs> the election of Margaret Thatcher? Yes, yes, it did. Um, or appointment, actually. Yeah, we're kind of we're kind of leaping ahead a bit. Um, what I what I did after meeting with Reggie is we had a series of conversations over time, and um, where those conversations led are better better described in the book. I don't want to give everything away, but I began to form a picture in my mind of Hugh involved with British intelligence, involved in all sorts of projects, including arms dealing and so on. But I couldn't work out whether he was just doing this on his own, whether he was a rogue operator, or whether it was part of something bigger. Reggie was convinced it was part of something bigger. But he made clear to me that um, it was very much above his pay grade. And indeed, his asking questions put him in very serious danger. Um, in one telephone call, he told me that he was having to call from a hotel because that um, – been an explosion in his in his apartment, and he wasn't sure if it was 
just an accident or whether it was deliberate, but he was pretty certain it was because of the questions he was asking on my behalf. So I began to form this picture, and with that picture, I would read books, and if I found anything that looked like that, I would write to various authors or whatever and say, okay, I've got a name. Does any of this mean anything to you? And out of the blue in this way, I made contact with a former Israeli intelligence officer who goes by the name of Ari ben Menashe, which is a main, some people may know, may some people may not know. Uh, he was a very controversial figure, wrote a very controversial book in the beginning of the 90s, which painted a very different picture of what had been going on in the 80s with uh, the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and in the Middle East with Iran-Contra. Um, and I wrote to him, and he came back, and he said, actually, yes, I, I, I know your, your friend, uh, I was aware of him. His name is on a list. We in Israeli intelligence were aware of what he was doing, and he was a very interesting figure to us. We didn't know some of the stuff that you're talking about, and I'd like to meet with you. And this began the second major intelligence episode of this book, was my conversations with him. But I, I mentioned that because, again, um, meeting with him and communicating with him, constantly I was aware that he was mixing in untruths with the truth, Everybody has an agenda. You and I were talking about Viktor Ostrovsky uh, before this, yes. this show. And everybody had not uh, an agenda. And Viktor was a classic example. Tell, tell the you, listeners who Viktor Ostrovsky was. Okay. Uh, back in the uh, early 90s, I believe it was, um, the, the world of political intrigue was taken by storm because this book was published by this gentleman called Viktor Ostrovsky, uh, which apparently laid bare all of the naughty goings-on by Israeli intelligence. And it was a spellbinding book um, and uh, a bestseller. And people were appalled and there were questions asked in legislators all around the world, what are the Israelis getting up to? But the interesting part was that a few years later, he wrote a second book saying this was all a setup. The, the, the first one was by way of deception. The second one, the other side of deception. The other side of deception. He said, I'm not saying this stuff didn't happen, but I was part of a deliberate PR operation to expose what was going on. And he explained that Israeli intelligence, like most of Israeli public institutions, is riven by politics. And there's a right wing and there's a left wing. And even to this day, there is. And in the 80s, in politics under Menachem Begin, um, the right-wing Likud party finally came up to power after decades of left-wing parties and uh, ruling Israel, the right-wing came to power. And so in Israeli intelligence, the right-wing gained prominence. And the difference between the two factions, according to Victor, was this, um, is that the left-wing faction in, in Israeli intelligence, dedicated as it was to uh, maintaining Israel and keeping its borders safe against Arab invasion, believed that the fight should be fought in the Middle East. That um, if there was a problem with Syria or Jordan or Egypt, the fight should be with them and no one else. The right wing, however, and Ari ben Menashe was a member of the right wing faction, as became clear later, the right wing believed that anywhere in the world was fair game in order to pursue an intelligence and a political agenda that kept Israel safe. And according to Ari, he was part of a group within the, uh, the right wing of Israeli intelligence who were dedicated to dirty tricks around the world to influence 
foreign politicians to engage in arms dealing and um, intelligence operations in order to um, gain support for Israel. And in uh, a book written by Patrick Seal, which Patrick wrote about Abu Nidal, um, Abby, uh, Ari is quoted in that book as saying that Abu Nidal, who was um, a very notorious Palestinian uh, terrorist back in the 60s and the 70s, and eventually ended up being a hitman for Saddam Hussein, that Abu Nidal was in fact um, in the pay of many different intelligence services, including that of Israel, and that Israel paid Abu Nidal to undertake some of his terrorist acts in order to gain sympathy for Israel. And so there were these two factions. And Viktor Ostrovsky was saying, we wrote the book to try and expose what the right wing were up to. Well, a couple of years later, Ari writes his own book, which essentially confirms all of this. Um, so taking the three books together, and Ari's book is called Prophets of War. And interestingly enough... Let me stop you for a second. How, how accurate yes. do you think Ostrovsky's books are? And the reason why I ask you this is because we know who's behind the media, and I just wonder, why would they allow this information to come out if it's truly accurate, unless they're trying to derail something or to you know, present a different face than the real one? Well, one of the things, uh, Mel, that I've... Okay, I'm one guy trying to make sense of what happened to my friend. And as, I'm, as the journey continues, I find myself... I find that he was involved in larger and larger things. Arms dealings, operations for Margaret Thatcher, um, Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, Middle East, Iran, Contra, all in the book. I'm trying to make sense of what I'm being told. And everybody has an agenda. The police had an agenda, which is why they didn't, um, why they held me in suspicion, but didn't want to do anything about it. But if you have an agenda, you want people to believe your agenda, so you present your agenda in written or verbal form, and you present it as fact. So, but nothing is fact. There is no objective source, no newspaper, no television program, no radio program, Mel, no book, not even my book, is objective. It can't be objective. It's always subjective. I may try to be objective, but it's always going to be my point of view. I put my hand on my heart and say, I'm not trying to sell an agenda. But nobody knows that. Um, and so how do you believe a book like the book of Victor Ostrowski? And all I can say is I've come up with my own, my own little process. And my process is I basically don't believe anybody. I believe everybody's lying. Everybody's got an agenda. So read a book. Work out in your mind what that book is trying to tell you. Read a newspaper article. Work out what is happening, what you believe is happening. Then try to work out who benefits. If this book is writing something and it's saying this, who benefits if I believe it? And the chances are that's the person who's written the book. And um, if you work out why, what, why they've written the book, if you work out how they benefit, then you probably work out why they've written the book. Precisely, we, precisely what I was saying, and I mentioned to you offline yeah. that I did try to get in touch with uh, Mr. Ostrovsky about a yeah. year ago, and mm -hmm. I found that uh, he's less than 100 miles away. He resides less than 100 miles away from me. He has an yeah. art gallery now, and I don't think he wants to touch this subject anymore. No, and, and, and that's it. So, so, how, how, so basically the same thing is true of my book. Your listeners read my book. They say, okay, what is, what, what is, this, what is Jeff trying to sell us? Well, I'm trying to sell you my, my belief about what Hugh Simmons was, was up to. Okay, who benefits from that? 
not very many people. I guess Jeff benefits if you buy enough books, but trust me, people, not that much. Um, and actually, you can come to the conclusion that the person who's benefiting is his kids. But what if I paint a picture? For instance, um, Ari was quoted at length in a book by I can't remember what his name was. It was another book. It was another one of these exposés about Israeli intelligence. And um, Ari was quoted at length. And I thought, okay, this is very interesting. I don't know this Gordon, whatever his name is, guy. But let's see whether we can believe him or not. What is he trying to paint? What picture is he trying to paint? And it's very interesting. The picture he was trying to paint was be very, very scared of Israel. Be very, very scared of Ari ben Menashe, and be very, very scared of the right wing in, in Israeli intelligence because they may just come and blow up a bomb in your country. And I thought, okay. So let's assume that is the purpose of this book, because I can't see any other purpose. That's the message I'm getting from this book. These are very, very scary people. I've met Harry. Harry's not that scary. Harry, Harry's a charming little man. You know, I went to dinner with his wife and his with his wife and him. He's not that scary. He engages in scary things. But I think Harry Bliss's eyes a lot more talk than he is anything else. And I think he's achieved a lot by being able to talk very well. But okay, that's what this book is achieving. And what I came out of it was with uh, what what I came away from that book was uh, with was that Gordon is not who he thinks he is. Now either he's a patsy who's being fed information or he is a part of the process. So then I started reading the rest of his book, bearing that in mind, and I was able to say, ah, oh, okay, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, this is rubbish. This is very interesting because he's sharing this information with us and this little piece of information doesn't add to that picture. So the chances are this little piece of information is true. Now, I may have given you a headache, Mel, explaining this, but that is precisely what I've had to do for 20 years, is trawl through books, trawl through pamphlets, trawl through documents, try and work out what is likely not to be true and what is likely to be true and build a picture. And in building that picture, according to some quite well-known journalists, I've built a picture of the 80s, 90s and the 2000s that is very different from the line that's being sold by the people who want you to buy their line. But that's, the, that's, how, that's how you find – that's the only way I can say you, you can find out whether it's true or not. Oh, the other way is actually contact the people firsthand, which is why I do a lot of contacting people firsthand, um, either telephoning them, writing to them, or turning up on their doorstep. Not a good idea, but the best way to get to the truth um, is to say, okay, look, you've written this book. I don't believe it. You say this, this, and this. I think this is true. Would you care to comment? Most of the time they don't. Sometimes they do. And, and here's the interesting thing. I've been asked this question. Why on earth would some of these people like Harry speak to you? You're a nobody. And it's okay, Mel. I am a nobody. Why would they speak to me? And that's a very good question. Um, part of it is I think they don't know who I am. And everyone in this game is very cautious. Partly it is because I have a bit of bravado about me. And I tend to go to them with some information, looking for more information. So they're not quite sure whether I'm a player or not. I haven't tried to be, but it's only later on I actually worked out, oh, you probably think I'm one of you. Well, yeah. Oh, no, no. No, I'm not. But okay. Um, partly it is because they don't know who I am and they're a little bit scared and a bit worried and they want to find out who I am. And it's that double agent point. You get information by giving information. A lot of the information I think that I've been given is not true. Some of it I've been able to prove is not true. 
Some of it I've been able to prove is not true by calling them a liar. And this is rule number two, because I did this with Ari. Do not stand in a lonely hotel room eight stories up with a former Israeli intelligence officer, if he's former, and tell him he's a liar because they don't like it. They don't like you turning up on their doorstep and they don't like being called liars. I counted how long, I tried to work out in my mind how long it would actually take to fall eight stories. Get away if, from the window. <laughs> yeah, get away from the window. Um, so it's been kind of interesting. But, you know, in amongst all of this, Mel, and it's kind of interesting because it adds to the the humanity. And a lot of the humanity I deal with in my book, I, and as I said, I went to dinner with, with Ari. He's, he's a rogue, so I kind of like him. But it's very difficult. It was, it, was like a, it was like a scene out of Seinfeld in the neighborhood diner. But instead of talking about blocked toilets, we were talking about arms deals. It was surreal. Anyway, um, um, yeah, there was a point and I completely missed it. Completely lost it now. Um, but uh, no, I've lost that point. So um, after you're this, sitting with Ari, Ari, in the equivalent of a Seinfeld diner, and uh, talking about uh, yeah. arms. Just, you forgot. So, somehow I got I got thinking about Jerry Seinfeld, and that completely completely lost my train of thought there. Well, let me ask um, you then. So before, oh, ho, ho, no, no, you I got, got it. I, I got it back. Okay. Um, and Ari kind of admitted this to me because I'm very honest, uh, brutally honest sometimes, dangerously honest sometimes. And I said, "Why are you talking to me? Why?" You know, and in fact, this is the thing. Um, this was back in 90. I last spoke to him at that time. I met up with him in 93. I finished talking with him in 98. He kind of went off the radar uh, and I didn't need to speak with him anymore. But Chris, as part of his due diligence as a publisher, said, ah, I'm really going to need to speak with Ari. I said, I haven't been in touch with Ari in 20 years. I mean, he might turn around and say it was just all a lie. Uh, but I contacted Ari and he was like, oh, hello, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm like, fine, you need to speak to my publisher. Happy to do that. Spoke with the publisher. The publisher was happy. Um, and he gave me a quote, which is on the back of the uh, book. Um, and I'd asked him before, but I asked him again. I said, why, why are you helping me? And he kind of went around the houses. But he said, you know, it became obvious to me that you were genuine. I don't know. Okay, and he said, and he didn't say much more than that, but I think that Ari has described himself as a very bad person. He's a nice person. He's a charming person. If you met him, you'd have a drink with him and you'd talk to him. It's just that life has taken him into uh, a realm of activity, which is about death. It's about arms, arms deals, cheating, lying, stealing, having people killed, that's what he does for a living, and he does it very well. Um, and I think the man has a conscience. And uh, more than once, I've got the feeling that people are talking to me, not for any of the reasons that I've mentioned, you know, I might be a player, they might be able to get something out of me. I think actually it's a load off their chest. They actually like, they actually like the idea that somebody is doing this to find out what happened uh, to a guy so his children will know. And I know it sounds very old-fashioned, but sometimes I think that is the only reason these people talk to me is because they work out that I'm genuine. Um, I guess probably they either work out that I'm genuine or they would have bumped me off. Um, <laughs> I'm glad they've made, they've made the decision I'm genuine. And living, so I think in, I, living in North Carolina, in my opinion, wouldn't make a difference. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, who wants to kill anybody who lives in North Carolina? 
Come on, it's it's way too nice a place. Um, so, but, you know, but still, I have to try and work out what 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 is true and what is not. So, there was a point actually about mentioning Ari. Um, I'm going to try very hard to bring it back to the to the question that you were asking. Uh, no, I can't. Okay, so well, okay, hold it right what? there because we have to separate both segments, and maybe that's going to give you an opportunity to to recalibrate and bring that thought yeah. back. But when we when we come back, I want to make the connection between all of these. You know, you're trying to find the the reason why your friend was allegedly killed. We, we, mm-hmm. After reading the book, it seems to me that obviously he was involved in many things. Perhaps he mm-hmm. was a double agent. Who knows? Uh, he crossed somebody. He was expendable, as we stated, and his time expired at that time. And yeah. you're trying to find the answer. But along the way, you found all these connections. You know, we mentioned the Mujahideen. We mentioned even ISIS right now. The mm-hmm. trend continues. When I look at the budget, the expenditure for the United States, just military budget, close to $600 billion a year. When I see the expenditures of how much money we sent to Israel, $3 billion yeah. a year, Egypt, yeah. Jordan, Qatar, uh, Pakistan, we know that this money is going to be landing somewhere so that the game can continue. The yes. biggest th- risk for them is peace. And when mm-hmm. we come back, I want to dissect all of this, connect all the dots, and give us a picture that perhaps you can even see where we are going with the refugee crisis, with ISIS, which in my opinion, this is a creation to perpetuate wars. But again, that's just me. I'm sure a lot of the listeners may agree. Some may not. But how can people buy Maggie's Hammer and learn more about your work? Jeff? Yes. You want to know how? Yes. How can people buy the book? Google Maggie's Hammer. There's nothing else out there called Google Maggie's Hammer. You will either get to my website, maggieshammer.com, or you'll get to Amazon and some other places. I'm happy for you to buy it. But yes, if you Google Maggie's Hammer, you will find it very easy to find your way to my book. And I promise you, it's a good read. It's an interesting read. You'll learn a lot. But it's also an intensely personal story. And it may inspire people to ask some questions of their own. We also have links to the book on our website. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Jeffrey Gilson, author of Maggie's Hammer. Very fascinating story. And we'll dissect more of this case when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. When I first set eyes on you First you beat me up Then you kissed me too We throw stones into the sea There were no others there Just you and me Across the bridge and down the lane I knew I loved you then You said you did the same Oh Maggie What have you done? I should have seen it coming To your side I'd run Oh Maggie Come to me tonight I will wait up for you Make sure you're alright 
I never have been 